So I have a question for you. Are you specifically a Liverpool fan or a Mo Salah fan? I get this question a lot. We will find out when he moves to another club how deep my allegiance to Liverpool is. But the club has, like, I've, I really have started to love the club. Like, I can't imagine now supporting another team. Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest today is Salma Musa. She is an assistant professor of political science at Yale. That's a position that she recently took, actually, just this summer, after a postdoc between Stanford's Center for Democracy Development and Rule of Law and the Immigration Policy Lab. She also did her PhD at Stanford. She is, it goes without saying, a rising star in the field of political science and has published some of the field's highest profile papers in recent years. Her work centers around questions of how people build social cohesion after conflict. At least that's the way she summarizes it on her website. Um, But what really drew me to her work is that it addresses some of our most significant social questions, such as how we reduce prejudice and violence, uh, how to make a society that works for everyone, that sort of thing, uh, in ways that are both theoretically motivated and have a really good grounding in like real-world behavior. So her work, uh, I feel, breeds new life into established old-school theories such as intergroup contact, uh, the idea that um, the most effective way to reduce prejudice between groups is positive social contact. So uh, she, you know, published a solo author paper in Science uh, with the title of Building Social Cohesion Between Christians and Muslims Through Soccer in Post-ISIS Iraq. So we discussed that paper at length towards the end of the conversation. Uh, And she's also the author on a paper about uh, the Mo Salah effect, which is uh, the uh, occasion for for discussing the nature of her fandom at the beginning of the episode. But uh, the paper at any rate showed uh, genuine reductions in anti-Muslim sentiment and even prejudicial behavior in Liverpool after Mohamed Salah joined the city's football team. Uh, It is an awesome study, the details and backstory of which we also get into. So I guess uh, at an overall level, the the thing that stood out to me about Salma's work is that she seems to do a, a smaller number of big, important projects really well, rather than a bunch of smaller projects that aren't as meaningful. And personally, I I so often feel that science, especially in psychology and social psychology, uh, rewards quantity over quality. And so uh, I find it incredibly inspiring to see someone who invests in doing the big projects, which will lead to actually important advances in our understanding of human behavior. And uh, she's out there living that. So uh, Salma was a pleasure to talk to, and I know you will enjoy this conversation. So without any further ado, here is Salma Musa. So anyway, uh, Salma, where did you where did you originally grow up? Um, that's, I guess it's not a complicated question. It just has a lot is a long list of countries. So I was born in Cairo, um, in Egypt, and then we moved to Saudi Arabia, and we moved around within Saudi Arabia a lot. Then when I was five, we immigrated to Canada. And so I lived in Toronto. We lived in Toronto for uh, four or five years. Then we moved back to Saudi Arabia. We moved around within Saudi Arabia. 
Then we moved to the UAE, to Abu Dhabi. And that's where I've spent, I guess, my, my parents are still there. So I did high school there at the British school. Then I did my undergrad in Qatar and a little bit in Paris and Washington, D.C. Wow, it sounds really pompous, but this is just the this is just what happened. And then I stayed, hung around in Qatar for a little bit after finishing my undergrad. And then I moved to the U.S., to California to do my Ph.D., which I just finished. Um, and then I realized that uh, California is actually the place I've lived the longest in my life, which mm. is kind of crazy because I moved there when I was 23. Um, so, do, is it, yeah, I guess you kind of answered it there. Does any one of those places feel more like home than the others, like in an identity sort of sense? It's honestly hard to answer because yeah. I would say Abu Dhabi uh, because my kind of formative years were there and that's where I go home to over Christmas. But um, I'm not from there. I can never be a citizen there. My parents, when they retire, are going to leave the country. So we have, we're going to have no lasting ties once they retire. So it's very hard to say I'm from there when I really am not. Mm. Um, I guess the community I resonate with the most is probably the expat community of the, of the Arabian Gulf. <laughs> That's probably the community I feel the strongest attachment to. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I... <sighs> I guess maybe this is jumping ahead because I want to ask you about several several parts of your your story as it's unfolded. But I, I'm curious to know off the, off the bat, like how do you feel that sort of I don't know how you want to describe this, but cosmopolitanism of of your of your upbringing. What what do you what have you gotten out of that? How has that affected uh, who you've become and the way you see things and and, and all that sort of stuff? Um, I guess there are. Were- two things that I started to notice more as I grew up that I became really interested in from a research perspective. The first is that in my school, in the very specific context of the British School of Abu Dhabi, um, we really didn't have like, I didn't even know where my classmates were from. Like Mm. I just didn't know, I didn't care. Some of them were Arab, most of them were British or Australian or something. And it just never came up. I truly didn't know and didn't care. It was not a salient division between people whatsoever. So I grew up in this weird bubble where there were no lines of like nationality or religion between anyone. It was completely irrelevant. Um, Maybe one division that was, you know, we kind of noticed was if you're a local, if you're from the UAE or not. But even then we had a lot of um, Emirati students, so it wasn't really a big deal. And then when I moved to France and lived in the U.S., you know, you start to realize like, oh, wow, that's not the usual way it is. Normally people really care about these things and these are these are fault lines and people notice them and people talk about them and everything is like very racialized in the U S to a really, um, to a really extreme extent. And so that was not what I was used to. And so as as you kind of realize like that, it doesn't have to be that way necessarily. And the second thing that I, that I noticed growing up is that based on whatever context I was jumping into, people would see me in a different way. So when I'm in Canada, they're like, Oh, you're, I'm, I'm the Egyptian one in Canada. When I'm in Egypt, I'm the Canadian one. Like they're like, Oh, you're foreign. When I'm in the UAE, I'm, you know, I'm an expat. It doesn't really matter where I'm from. Uh, when I'm in the U S I'm suddenly Arab again. Um, when I'm in France, I was definitely Arab, uh, even though it wasn't the kind of Arab they were necessarily used to. And so, you know, it's, you just start to realize like, this is, there's something more to this. Like people change the lens that they see me depending on their own. I don't know. It's so that kind of triggered my, my interest in this question of social cohesion and when does it matter? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that there is no or low social cohesion. Yeah. Yeah. So 
obviously you've got this, uh, you know, great track of research that you're on now. Uh, and we're going to talk a bunch about that. But for undergraduate, I'm not even going to try and get the details of this right, but it was some converse, uh, uh, you know, some confluence of Georgetown, Qatar, Paris, international politics, foreign service, something or another. Um, so I guess my question regarding that period of your life is, okay, so you had this, you know, everything you were talking about with the, the, the different identities and, and contexts of, of, of your upbringing, you get to undergraduate. What do you think it is that you are doing or going to do? What do you think your relationship to all that is? Are you going to be in some sort of foreign service, international politics thing? Or what, what, is, what is your mindset at that point? I thought I would be a diplomat. Hmm. I thought I was going to be a diplomat. The problem was um, I didn't know what country I would be a diplomat for. <laughs> I remember speaking with my uh, great uncle who, uh, who passed away recently, but he back in the day was an, the Egyptian ambassador to Singapore and I think a couple of other countries. And I remember telling him like, I'm, I got into Georgetown School of Foreign Service. I'm going to be a diplomat. I'm going to be an Egyptian ambassador. And he's like, who are you kidding? Your <laughs> written Arabic skills are nowhere near nuanced enough to do something like diplomacy. So he completely shut that down like before my first day at Georgetown. Then I spoke with the Canadian ambassador in the US and he's like, yeah, you know, we're good. We got a steady stream of people, you know, apply if you want. And I'm like, oh, Canada doesn't really, doesn't really need me. <laughs> and Egypt doesn't really want me. So um, I guess I'm not gonna be a diplomat. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. And how did you feel about that at the time? Uh, I just figured, okay, I'm going to do something else, somewhat related to politics or government. Um, I think deep down I had some desire, like I want to help people, but I want to do it through politics. So I don't know, I guess I really enjoyed being a student and I just fell into it. I wasn't even going to do a PhD. I was going to apply for a master's. And my advisor said, you know, you can just apply directly for the PhD. Like, just try your luck. And I did. And the first year I got in nowhere, literally not one school. <laughs> I applied the next year. I got in, in a bunch of places and I'm like, okay, guess I'm going to be doing a PhD. So I kind of just fell into it as a, I was just so used to being a student and it's the only thing I knew how to do. So when my diplomacy dreams got crushed, it just seemed like the inertia took me that way. Well, <laughs> Sorry. That's not a very exciting story. <laughs> what was the difference between uh, round one and round two? Uh, I think GRE score. Oh, okay. I didn't really, I didn't know it was kind of a screening mechanism. So, so my file was exactly the same really, but I just studied a little harder for the GRE the second time. That's kind of hilarious. I mean, yeah. uh, maybe tragic <laughs> depending on how you're uh, like, what lens you're looking at. It wasn't throughout. hilarious at the time. <laughs> um, yeah, it was fine. But in retrospect, that's pretty hilarious. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so I guess, yeah. I guess I need to study for this. Cause that's the first thing they look at to even see if you get into the discussion. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, how, how well formed were your, it was a pretty, pretty casual, I mean, it sounds like you knew you wanted to do this cause you applied twice. So either you really <laughs> want to do this or you really were, were, uh, were wanting for alternative, uh, paths, probably maybe a little bit of both, but, um, but, uh, yeah, how, how clear were your research interests at this point? So after I finished uh, my undergrad, I stayed in Qatar for uh, a year or two afterwards, and I worked as a research assistant at a place called the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies. 
And that is a research institute. That's a think tank research center. They publish, you know, peer reviewed journals and their entire working language is in Arabic. Everything is in Arabic. And that was like a, a, an amazing and very difficult experience for me to suddenly switch languages and learn to do everything research wise in Arabic, like talk about regressions in Arabic. Like that was not in my vocabulary to present research like that. And I really believed in the mission. And now they've set up a graduate school, which I, I was part of that at the very beginning. And I just was like, yeah, this is something that we need. We need this human capital. We need this coming out of our region. We need to have our own knowledge production, not just be talked about. Um, and I really believed that. And I really enjoyed the research coming out of there. Um, they were good with the quantitative stuff, but they were still, it was still growing. And so I thought, okay, I really need to learn how to do this properly because I want to be like the best at this. I want to be even better than the places that train me. Um, and like, we just don't have that kind of training in the region. And so when I applied and then I started thinking, okay, where am I going to go? Stanford was like math, 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 stats, 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 causal inference. And I know myself, I don't naturally really like that stuff, but I thought, unless I put myself in an environment where I'm forced to learn it, I'm not going to learn it. So that's why, that's one of the main reasons why I chose Stanford and they did whip me into shape. And now I'm really glad that I can consume and produce work in that language. Um, and which is not that which is not that common in the Middle East. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. I mean, that's that's definitely something I think is a commonality between a lot of you know, if you look at the what instigated a lot of really great research programs, it's that con- concept of okay, I've got this set of ideas that people in this particular field or, or whatever it is have, and then I'm going to bring something exogenous from somewhere else into that to, uh, to, to add something new to what, what they're doing and, and vice versa. And so I love, uh, yeah, it's just super, super cool to hear that you consciously made that decision. It's like, even though I don't gravitate towards this one thing, this is the thing that's going to give me that edge in the, the thing that I really do. Exactly. No. Exactly. Cause I know like we have, um, not enough, but we do have intellectuals obviously in the Arab world and they're amazing and they do really important work, uh, but we don't have so much like the statistical rigor. We don't have a lot of policy evaluation. Like that whole language doesn't really exist. And I wanted to speak it. So I want to talk to you about a couple of your projects in particular. Um, But before we do that, there's a little bit more like, I guess, meta stuff that I'm just curious um, to hear about. Um, Since you are someone who is on the like early part of their career, on this uh, really cool track and, and that sort of stuff, as opposed to someone who was way tenured long ago and is now, uh, you know, out of the game and everything like that. Given up. <laughs> what, what were some of the things that you did, like productivity-wise, or something along those lines? However, you conceptualize it in graduate school. What, what did you find you did that like helped you, con- consistently put out good research and, and, and make progress um, throughout, you know, those difficult years of, of, of grad school and postdoc. Does anything come to mind on those, on those mm. fronts? So firstly, I'm not sure if I was the most productive necessarily. And I got into a lot of the same bad habits that grad students get into, but two things that I found generally helped. One was the concept of deep work. The idea that when you're in that flow state of writing, And that is the whole name of the game in academia. It is only writing papers. It's basically nothing else. Like that is the only thing you need to optimize for. It's in in a way it's it's nice because it's so clear what you need to do. (laughs) The standard is very clear. So deep work and really protecting your time when you're in that flow of writing 
like almost to an extreme, like cancel things that you have going, you know, planned if you're in like a good flow, cause it's so hard to get there. So that was the first thing is like, you have to start with deep, deep work and protect deep work and all the other stuff, writing emails, you know, do that at night when you're watching like TV in the background or something. And the second thing was imposing a structure on my day. So like grad school, I think a, a reason why a lot of people like feel like they're drowning in it sometimes is because it, it's really unstructured. And especially after you're done all your coursework, you're just like floating around working on a dissertation supposedly. Like there's no schedule, there's no start time, no end time. People are sending emails at all times of day and night. People work weekends all the time. Like grad, it, it's actually rare for grad students to take a day off on the weekend, which is just insane because, you know, we're not, you know, we're not like open heart surgeons in the Congo. Okay? <laughs> like this is not, it's not necessary. So just forcing myself to be like, okay, I'm working nine to five and that's it. And I'm taking my weekends off because there's absolute nothing I do is important enough that I need to be working all day on the weekends. Those two things I think help me a lot. Really cool. So for the first one, is there a time of day or like, what does that, what does that deep work look like for you? Does it, does it arise whenever it arises, or can you, can you predict like, well, if I sit down from nine to noon, uh, I'm going to bang, uh, I'm going to bang some stuff out. Yeah. Usually it's the first couple hours and then, um, it just decreases after that. So I know for me, the morning is very precious. Like once, you know, I've exercised coffee kicks in, you know, kid is at daycare and I'm just sitting at my desk and it's quiet. Like those are, that is the time where I don't have any meetings. I stack my meetings. Like I try to do them like one or two days a week and just stack them, um, and have them not interrupt the day. Or if I, or if I do schedule them, it'll be right at the end of the day so that I know it doesn't interrupt that state. And then how did you structure, how did you impose structure during graduate school? What strategies? I would go into the office. So that's something I, you know, I would first be working a lot like from my couch, from the library, I'll go into a cafe, but then I'm like, this, you know, this isn't working for me. I need to feel like I'm, this is a job and I need to make it feel like a job, even if the environment is not making it feel like a job. So I created that environment. So I would just go into the office. I was lucky that I had an office um, at the lab that I was at at Stanford as well. So I would just show up every day and sit at my little desk and plug in my computer to my monitor and put my headphones in and take my lunch break, come back and, you know, make really treat it like almost like punching in and out. It sounds kind of sad when you say it like that, but it really wasn't working for me to, to you know, think, okay, if you're going to work eight hours a day, you can work those eight hours in the office and be done at five. Or you can do the grad student, you know, modal thing, which is I'm just going to work for two hours and then do nothing for an hour and then another half an hour and then another three hours. And then you're really never fully off and you're kind of half working from 9 a.m. to like 1 a.m. Like that's like a very typical thing that happens. There's just no end point. So sometimes you just have to force yourself, like put on some pants, like get out, <laughs> go into the office, you know, so that worked for me. Yeah, absolutely. Like using the physical space to, uh, um, you know, symbolize, to imply that you're in the psychological state of working. You're not going to screw around on Facebook, at least not for any long period of time, if you can help it. Uh, you know, you're going to be there, you're going to get your work done, you're going to go off and, and do something. And, and actually, the, the other thing I did was I realized I had kind of a ritual before I started working. So when I take a break or before I started working in the mornings, I would like check my email, check Instagram, uh, check the news, you know, whatever. There's like 10 to 15 minutes of just a ritual that happens before I open up the document I'm supposed to be working on. So I cut out that ritual. 
Like now when I <laughs> just cut it, you don't need to go through all those motions before you actually open up the file you're supposed to be working on. As soon as you sit down, just open the damn file first. That's the crazy just start thing about it. work. Just get started. That's the crazy <laughs> thing about work is like you can literally just start doing it. And it, and it actually- You can like, literally just start doing it's, it. It's, it's, it's <laughs> it bananas, is crazy. But it's, uh, uh, also, let, let's flag the fact that that advice going into the office, or not advice, but you know that, that system, Probably the most useless thing you could propose from uh, circa March 19 through, uh, let's say, like August 2020. Offices totally. didn't exist, but... Uh, Worse, there's that. It's <laughs> hopefully it's back back to it. Um, uh, even if cool. you're in your house, though, it's even cool. if you're working yeah. from home, you can still like get dressed and have a workspace and close the door. You know, if you at least have that kind of setup, that you at least have a space that's sectioned off. But being and really... get in the zone there. Being yeah. really serious about the the division between work and exactly. not work, and like guarding, jealously guarding your non work time, and taking that seriously, and and treating it as legitimate as 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 it is and should be. Um, I love that. All right, so what was the first big project that you worked on uh, when you got to Stanford and sort of uh, started, you know, uh, working on research stuff? You know, I actually think it's what ended up being the paper about uh, soccer in Iraq. Because yeah. that project I started in my second year at Stanford, actually. And it started <laughs> out as just doing a survey in Iraq. And then I thought, hmm, let me do an experiment here. <laughs> like, yeah. there's an opportunity here. People need programming. Like, there's a big need. And I want to see if, you know, I can put some of these, like, theories and insights to the test to actually make these programs better. Um, so it, it, so, but that project actually started in like the fall of my second year in 2016. It's that classic, you know, first single author paper from grad school and science effect, you know, like it's just, that's, just, that's just, how but I works. have to say, so, like, I basically worked on nothing else the whole time. Yeah. That's why I'm like, why is he asking me about all this productivity stuff? I just did one. So the, the nature of my, of my work of doing field experiments is it's, takes a lot of upfront investment. It takes yeah. a lot of coordinating with people on, you know, late night WhatsApp kind of thing. Like you, it's yeah. a lot of that. It's not as much like, oh, I'm going to, if I'm a political theorist, for example, my whole work stream is just very different. And so there's a lot more that can go wrong with field experiments and just a lot of project management that grad school also doesn't teach you. Yeah. Um, so those projects take a long time. Um, that's just the, that's just the nature of them. So so yeah, so um, I guess just to say a little bit about why the occasion for my interest in your work and that sort of stuff, um, sure. by, by way of preface to, to getting around to the, the couple projects. All right, um, so I was doing a deep dive on contact theory and specifically how it, it, it pertains to travel. So I was interested in this question of, so you have casual travel, something that a billion people do per year, going abroad to a different place. And we sort of all have this intuition that it's like, well, to what extent, like, you know, or I guess the intuition is that there is probably like, yeah, like the more you can see the world, the more you can have this engagement with different cultures, even in a casual way, uh, there would be a, a prejudice reduction sort of there. And so I did a deep dive on, on contact theory and uh, I, through that, found your papers. So you have your, uh, the one we are talking about is building, it's called Building Social Cohesion Between Christians and Muslims Through Soccer in Post-ISIS Iraq, which is 
a pretty succinct summary of, of what the, the paper's about. Um, and then your, uh, uh, your, your other one, um, your co-authored paper on Can Celebrities Reduce Prejudice? The Effect of Muhammad Salah on Islamophobic Attitudes and Behaviors. And uh, what stands out to me about these papers is sort of like from the scientific aesthetic of them, you have these really compelling, clear questions that you went in and did these really cool field studies that when you read them, you're like, oh my God, that's so like, duh, that's the thing. Why has not, why, why has that not been there before? And you have this really clear, cool way of, of answering it. And so I kind of love uh, the fact that you were able to do these two cool studies, not feeling like you had to solve everything in like 10 gazillion different studies and, and all that sort of stuff, but you have these really compelling really clear things that you've been able to do a lot with. And I think that's a really cool mode of scholarship. And also the the results themselves have been really cool. And I want to talk a little about what they say. Well, I really, really appreciate that. Um, I like to work on things I find interesting and people will tell you all the time, like, oh, sports is, you know, such a force for good in society. I think on the whole it is, but I wanted to kind of put that to the test. Like it's not just a feel good thing that we think in the back of our minds, but actually like when we test this, is it true? So tell me about this first study. Can you summarize maybe like what you did? Like I, I'm interested, like in my mind, you uh, were, uh, there is a, a league with Muslim and Christian players in Iraq, an amateur league, and you uh, were uh, in there somehow administratively orchestrating who got put on which team and following how that changed, whether they were on a, a mixed or um, a uniform team, how that changed their attitude. So can you say, yeah, I guess summarize what the, the study was and, and what it um, found. And, and I'm also curious to know like what it looked like on the ground of, of, of executing it. Sure. So I'll combine the responses to both of those things. Um, so I was working with um, a, a re- two research managers in Iraq, one named Kelsey Beal, the other is Rabia Zakaria. Um, and they were like living and working in, um, in these like Christian, predominantly Christian areas in Northern Iraq that had been heavily impacted by ISIS. At that point, um, people were still displaced. Um, and we decided like, okay, there's a real need for programming in this area. People are sitting around and they don't have anything to do. And their focus groups quickly revealed everyone wants to play soccer. Great for me. I happen to be a soccer fan. This is, you know, this couldn't go better. Uh, And at the same time, I study contact theory and soccer and team sports in general. They tick a lot of the boxes. You have equal status within the team. Um, You have cooperation toward a common goal for people who are on the same team, obviously. Um, So it really, uh, it just ticked a lot of the boxes. I'm like, this is a good test of the theory. If it works, it should work using team sports. Uh, So we decided to set up these leagues. And so this is really where the, my research manager, Rabia, who's, who's Iraqi, is from this community, this displaced community. And he decided, you know, he's like, okay, I'll just do this. And he did. He set up as four soccer leagues and recruited all the pre, you know, all the existing teams in the area, which were predominantly all Christian teams. It's pretty segregated. Um, but then when we recruited them, we said, okay, there is one condition, which is that um, our mandate is that we need to make sure that different communities are included. Uh, so we're going to add players to your team. We're not going to take anyone away, but we're going to add three or four players to your team um, who should be of a similar skill level. You know, we've like scouted them and they may or may not be Christian. That's the caveat to you joining these leagues. And everyone joined. Some people were hesitant at first. 
like one team was like walking there, they walked out and we're like, that's fine. But then they came back <laughs> and actually, as it happened, that team got assigned to the treatment condition, which was to receive added Muslim players. Um, and so that was the randomization. It was, you were either randomly assigned your team uh, to receive three or four Muslim players or three or four Christian players. Um, so we're holding constant this kind of experience of receiving new players who you haven't, who you don't know, who you haven't played with before. It's just the identity that's being um, varied. And then these leagues went on in a very natural way for two months. People showed up to the game. So we set up the infrastructure part. So there were bleachers, um, there were like snacks and drinks and kids could come. And it was so many, you know, hundreds of fans at these games. It was a big social event. There was a mascot. Um, there was a, you know, a commentator, like live commentary. So it was just a cool thing that I think the community really enjoyed. And then after the league, so a few months later, we decided to actually measure, well, did being on this mixed team actually change your attitudes and more importantly, your behaviors toward not just the guys who you met. So this is the, this is the key thing about contact theories. It makes a massive assumption that if you start to feel more positively toward the specific individuals you come into contact with, that you're now suddenly going to feel more positive toward everyone from that group. That is the whole theory. And if that's not true, then it's kind of trivial. Like it's, it's nice to build a handful of friendships, but it's not going to be this transformative thing in society. Um, so then I realized, okay, so we need to start testing whether these effects generalize to, in this case, Muslims more broadly. That's the outgroup in this case. So we started measuring things like, are you more likely to go to Muslim dominated neighborhoods, which we measured by giving people restaurant vouchers and seeing who actually showed up to this restaurant in this Muslim dominated uh, area. In this case, it was the city of Mosul. Um, are they still training together six months later? Uh, do they sign up to be on a mixed team the next time we run the leagues? Um, so that was a setup. And then what we found was that being assigned to these mixed teams it does improve how you act toward the guys on your team. So you're more likely to vote to give or in the leagues in general. So you're more likely to vote for someone, a Muslim in the league to win a sportsmanship award. Um, you're more likely to sign up for a mixed team next season, but it doesn't actually change any of your behaviors toward Muslims more generally. And it doesn't really change your attitudes about Muslims more generally. Um, and so this kind of generalization assumption in contact in the contact hypothesis, I didn't find that to hold at least in this limited sample, in this one case, which is a pretty extreme case where people have gone through this, you know, this crazy conflict uh, where it doesn't really make sense to start trusting strangers from the out group. Um, but so that, so that's the study in a nutshell. Yeah. And so there are positive effects of the, uh, you know, intergroup condition versus the uniform condition but it's not a panacea to the whole oh well if we just hang out and play footy together then we're going to solve all of our, our our most deeply held conflicts and issues and that sort of stuff yeah and so i think for me the takeaway is like you you really need to combine these things with structural changes mm. you need to actually deal with things like residential segregation and deal with things like um, you know, you need structural protections for minorities. Like people don't, sometimes it's not a case of old fashioned prejudice, yeah. you know, it's people actually have a ra very rational reason to distrust others, especially when you've just gone through a war. Um, and so it's like perfectly natural that these effects don't necessarily generalize in that case. This to me is the modern iteration of contact theory and what's happening in, in your work and a lot of contemporary people who are, who are working on it, is that back in 1954, when Gordon <laughs> Alpert published uh, Nature of Prejudice, 
uh, that was the same year that Brown v. Board of Education, uh, uh, the ruling from the Supreme Court came down. And so the like problem at hand, as they understood it in that time, was about the actual attitudes that people held. And that was the key thing. It's like, well, there's this explicit thing. Like, there's a significant group of people who don't like people from other races, et cetera, that sort of thing. How do we change that? And I think that that was a pretty reasonable uh, understanding of that at the time. Certainly naive in, in ways that we understand now, but reasonable at the time. And I think it's at some points uh, a greater understanding of the fact that it's not just that person A feels negatively in some way towards B, but it's these really deep-seated societal structural issues that are not necessarily just a function of psychological attitudes and changing of psychological attitudes is potentially helpful but it's certainly not going to get you all the way there and so a a combining of you know okay how do we move a little bit in the individuals uh and their 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 attitudes and their prejudices that sort of stuff how to move that a little bit on those to create a, a hopefully large effect but then how do we combine those with the the bigger, um, you know, changes. That to me is the fundamental current uh, in in the sort of modern understanding of, of, of contact theory as I understand it, and of which your uh, study is, is certainly a, a, a key example of. I mean, I'm, I think it's a brilliant theory. I think it's a brilliant insight. And I think on a one-to-one level, it does happen. I think I, I understand the friendships form, you get to know people, you might have some stereotypes that you realize are not true, but in general, you know, you just meet someone, you realize like, oh, this is a really co- complex, complicated person who's like more like me than I thought. They're very human. Uh, it's not a cartoon character. Um, but I think the thing that contact hasn't theory, the theory hasn't really dealt with is when you build this mental fence around that one person who you met. Mm. And there's a lot of reasons why that happens. Um, but I just think that that happens. And I think the contact theory needs to deal with that. Like why you can meet someone who's a perfect shining example of, you know, a wonderful human being. And you might actually say, well, that person's an exception. And so whether or not this generalization happens might actually be a function of your own prejudice to begin with. You might be much more likely to exceptionalize people if you're prejudiced. And so if that's the case, then the theories, you know, it's, it's definitely not as impactful as we might expect. And I should say, I don't know if any of this is true. This is just, this is my hunch is that this happens. And I mean, one example, and I I really should look at some data to test this, but when I look at the American South, like you have, actually it's pretty socially integrated um, as as I understand it across like racial lines, but you have people who hold really, really conservative racial attitudes. And so that seems to fly in the face of contact theory. Same in places like South Africa, you actually have racial mixing between people on a friendship level, but those people might also hold the most right-wing views. And so why is it not working in those cases? When do people build those mental fences versus when do, when do those positive effects generalize? So I think that's, the, that's what the theory needs to contend with now. Well, I'm super excited to see what you do with that question. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> so, uh, no, another reason that I loved this study, uh, and this is a total aside, is that uh, so I spend an egregious amount of time playing and watching football slash soccer, and um, one of I so I uh, the college that I'm in at Oxford is called Jesus College, and the team for I have no idea what reason, but for whatever whatever logistical reason, the team that we end up playing most consistently is the Islamic Society. And so we have Jesus College versus the Islamic Society. And this is my favorite game oh, Lord. Uh, because, you know, uh, and so 
basically it like there's there's all these hilarious kind of like semi isomorphisms with your with your study where it's like uh, not I don't think anyone on Jesus College is really Christian, but you know the symbolism is funny enough. Um, it is pretty funny, uh, and uh, is certainly not lost on the participants and the fact that we are always for whatever reason playing each other. Uh, and, and like, you know, there's the, the exact same facts that you, uh, uh, talk about that it's like, um, now there's like, well, you know, you train, uh, like training to like, there's partial integration of the groups into like, well, a couple of, uh, us go train in their, uh, you know, thing and a couple of, the, uh, but at any rate, it like, like I just, because that is like a part of my life, um, the fact that your study is essentially a scientific, uh, bearing out of that thing, like, I'm just very funny. That's pretty funny. I mean, the interesting thing in that case is you're also competing against each other, which is, you know, that is the number. I think if there's one thing we can say for certain about contact theory, it's that competitive contact is definitely not good. You definitely yeah. need to be cooperating. That's like, for sure, that's bad. Yeah. So I don't know if uh, I don't know if Jesus College and the Islamic Society are going to be building any bridges if they're not going to. But that, but that's the teeth. thing that I'm saying. But uh, yeah, I mean, so your point's well taken. You're you're absolutely uh, correct there. Um, and uh, but yeah, like there is the partial because it's you know informal. It's not where we're not playing professional football here. There's all sorts of permutations of uh the, the the setups and everything and so you you do end up playing with a lot of things so there is not just competitive uh circumstances but um at any rate uh the other study of, of yours that i want to talk about is the uh the Salah one and uh yeah so yeah can you tell me a little bit about where the idea for that paper came from and then maybe by way of that, say, uh, the, you know, sort of basic argument and finding of the, of the paper. Sure. So I guess the, the immediate spark of inspiration for that paper came from watching the, there's a YouTube clip or a clip that went viral of these Liverpool fans. Um, I think it was after a Champions League game where Liverpool like just crushed Porto and these away these traveling fans were singing if he's good enough for you he's good enough for me if he scores another few then i'll be muslim too something like that and then he said he's something about like sitting in the mosque is where i want to be and then we're like whoa hang on a minute i mean not not to um uh paint a stereotype about soccer fans british soccer fans but you wouldn't necessarily expect them to start singing songs about wanting to be muslim and sitting in a mosque in a positive way in a flattering way Right. Um, so that's when uh, myself and my co-author started to get together and we just started having some like long walks around Stanford campus being like, OK, is there something here? Like we keep hearing about this. Everyone is going crazy over Salah saying that he's going to make people like less Islamophobic. And all of our friends were saying that, you know, on social media and like, wow, this guy's going to you know, change so much. And, you know, what a shining example. And so we wanted to actually test that idea. And the kind of other inspiration for me, because I study contact theory, is that this is a really different type of contact. It's it's not face-to-face -face contact. You're not like showing up for practice every day. You're just watching someone on TV. It's much more distant. Uh, and so can that kind of just, and that's why we call it exposure, because it's really just one-sided. Um, can that actually change anything? And the literature on this, what they call parasocial contact, which is, you know, just watching someone on TV, it tends to focus almost only on fictional characters. Like if you watch Will and Grace, are you going to become less homophobic? Um, but it doesn't really, uh, doesn't really deal with the case of a real person who you're exposed to on TV, which is a celebrity. 
And um, so you looked at uh, explicit attitude change. You looked at Twitter data, um, and you looked at what was the first part of the study? Can you uh, hate crimes? Yeah, hate crimes. Yeah. So um, the basic uh, finding there being that the relevant, you know, sort of negative uh, expression of you know a, a broad construal of uh, Islamophobia went down when compared to a, a control condition. Yeah, so that was from a research design perspective. You obviously can't just look at Liverpool fans over time and say, oh, look, they're they're tweeting less hateful stuff or there's hate crimes went down. You can't do that, right? Because you need a counterfactual. You don't know what would have happened had he knocked on there. There could be a lot of other stuff going on over time. So we need a control group. And so to do that, we use this um, synthetic control method. So we, if, if we look at... For, for hate crimes, we look at other counties that had really similar hate crime trends to Merseyside, which is where Liverpool is, before he joined the club. And so whatever happens in those counties that were trending very, very close to Merseyside, we can kind of uh, use that as a stand-in for what we would have expected to also happen in Merseyside had he not joined. And we use the same approach for the Twitter data as well. So looking at hate speech and anti-Muslim speech specifically, uh, we look at the fans of the other like big five clubs and Everton <laughs> uh, to construct that counterfactual and then compare what happened to Liverpool fans as opposed to the other fans of the big five clubs um, before and after he joined. And so what we find is that the rates of tweeting anti-Muslim content uh, was, uh, was halved among Liverpool fans compared to the rate among fans of other top five clubs and that the uh, hate crimes in Merseyside decreased by 16 or 17 percent relative to what was happening in other counties that were tracking very similarly to Merseyside before Salah joined. So we have this evidence that, okay, at least at the time point when he joined, you know, it, maybe it wasn't Salah, but when he joined at that specific moment relative to what was happening beforehand, we see this change in these real world behaviors that capture behaviors toward Muslims, you know, pretty extreme behaviors. So hate speech and hate crimes. And so we wanted to know what is it about Salah that's, that's potentially causing this. And so we did this survey experiment on Facebook where we recruited like 10,000 Liverpool fans and we uh, gave them a survey. And we found that when we randomly uh, primed them to think about his Muslim identity, that he prays, that his wife wears a headscarf, his daughter's name is Mecca, this kind of thing, uh, that they then report um, less Islamophobic attitudes later on in the survey. So when we asked them like, is, um, is our British values compatible with Islam or is Islam compatible with British values? they respond more positively to that when they've seen that prime. And so for us, it was kind of evidence that when there's a really strong psychological link between a player and the entire outgroup. So again, it's back to the idea of generalizing from one person to the entire group. And so in this case, like, you know, there are a lot of Muslim players in the Premier League, right? And in other leagues, like he's not the first, like if this would have happened, it should have happened with Zidane, for example. But it doesn't because those people don't, I mean, what we're speculating is that they're not, their Muslim identity is not that salient. So people don't make the psychological link. Whereas with Salah, it's really the first time that British fans and Europeans fans are seeing someone, you know, prostrate and pray on the pitch after they score a goal. That's new. You know, he kind of popularized that. Now, you know, Mane does it, Pogba does it. Um, but Salah was really one of the first high profile people to do that. And so you can't get away from the fact that he's Muslim, right? His name is Muhammad, not like Paul Pogba, right? Like so, uh, or, or Ozil even who has a bunch of tattoos, you know, people don't necessarily associate him. 
But with Salah, it's like he's very religious, he's very practicing. And so uh, it's a very salient part of his identity. And so that helps to link him to the broader group and to generalize attitudes toward him, toward uh, Muslims in general. So one question I had after reading this paper was, how important is it that Mo Salah has a good season? for these effects because you know when so you that's were, actually our next project yeah, we're actually working on that probably, question right now he was unequivocally like the best striker <laughs> in the premier league uh and then you know it's not that i mean he's still he's still one of the best but you know it's not it's no longer like he's the guy and there's questions about oh well should we switch at the liverpool front three and you know so it's not it's like you you had a very fortuitous period of time where it's not only he was introduced to the group but that group was then boom that's as good as it got so yeah, what is your what's the current work in progress on that? What's your current thinking on that? Uh, so we share the exact same, you know, I guess concern, which is that these effects only hold when whoever the Salah is in question uh, is playing well. Yeah. And when we did the study, that was when Liverpool was, you know, doing amazingly well. He was doing well with the national team. It was the best possible time to test this idea. So the natural question is, if he stops scoring goals, does this all go away? Or is there even a backlash? Um, what happens when he leaves the club? You know, any kind of negative contact experience. Um, and so that's what we're looking at now. So I'm not going to give too much away about this project because it's still ongoing. But what I can tell you is that, you know, what we're, what we're looking at testing now is to what extent um, is the overperformance of minority players rewarded? and the, their underperformance punished mm. relative to how people expect them to perform. And more broadly, uh, what is the response to minority players succeeding and the response to them making mistakes or doing badly? And is there like an added penalty to not performing well or to underperforming relative to expectations for minority players as opposed to non-minority players? Um, and so that's we're you know we're collecting data through uh, right now currently in this um, Premier League season to test that question. Awesome. Those are I mean those are huge and important questions. So I'm super excited to see uh, what the outcomes are there. That'll be that'll be awesome. Yeah, I mean this was I mean the inspiration for this as well came from you know when you read quotes from like Lukaku for example who says oh I'm Congolese when when I don't score when I score I'm Belgian Ozil said the same thing I'm Turkish when I playing badly when I'm playing well I'm German Cantona said the same thing back in the day that the French team is you know this like multicultural amazing thing when we're winning when we're doing badly oh it's just a bunch of Arabs and blacks um and so I think this is like you know fans can be very fickle. And if it really is true that all these positive effects are conditional on minorities basically being perfect, that's a huge burden to put on someone. And that's not true social cohesion. That's not true prejudice reduction if it's so conditional. Like true, true acceptance and true, true inclusion means that you have the right to have a bad day. Uh, that's when you're really equal. <laughs> so that's that's hopefully what we can test now. Yeah. Um, I think that's such a this this sport is going to be such a fascinating window into all of that because it's funny how soccer and you know European world football all this sort of stuff it's predicated on like a modest manageable amount of chauvinism nationalism and you know self group centrism. 
Uh, like I want my team to do well and partially it's based off of some demographic characteristic like either nationality or local uh, affiliation or you know the things that we were talking about earlier, like choosing your group based off of whatever thing and now that's just you know essentially a minimal groups paradigm that you've now bought into wholesale and that sort of stuff so the permutations here are just wow there's so much to unpack. I think it's such yeah, a Yeah, I mean, and you just also mentioned this kind of chauvinistic nationalistic stuff. I mean, the whole idea of an in-group is defined as in relation to an out-group, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's nice to expand our boundaries of who's considered an in-group, but that usually comes at the expense of hating some other group more. Um, and so in our Twitter data, for example, we did find some small, a little bit of evidence that there was actually a backlash effect among Everton fans, that they actually started tweeting more anti-Muslim stuff. So this can happen, right? This is like, you know, there's always that consequence. That's all, those two things are so closely tied. Like the stronger the in-group bond, the stronger the animosity toward the out-group essentially. So yeah, yeah. Well, so many different dimensions to it. I mean, sports are just that's really, a microcosm of everything else. That's really an intervention to consider is showing, you know, a Facebook survey where you're showing Liverpool fans how anti-Muslim Everton fans are, which which point <laughs> you'd be like, oh, I'm going to be the most pro-Islam Oh yeah, that's that's really an intervention. Yeah, I mean that's also another piece we didn't really yeah. look at too closely, but you know, uh, it could just be that you know now Salah is like one of us. You know, yeah. he's a player now. We have a shared identity. That's yeah. a whole other part. So now Salah is in, he's in the in group. Muslims are in the in group, you know, because they're Liverpool fans and he's a Liverpool player. So that's like a whole other mechanism. Which the the isomorphism. So we talked about the Jesus College versus um, uh, uh, Islamic, Islamic society. society. And then uh, the thing for me is uh, I'm a Chelsea fan. And of course, Chelsea boasts the main American player uh, in the Premier League. So I also... Although, man, what what does Pulisic need to do? Guys made a glass. To be like a starter. I Okay, yeah, but still, like, I just feel like there's so many moments where like he has arrived. And yet yeah. he just does not. I just feel like he's a little hard done by. Maybe there's too yeah. much competition at Chelsea. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I really think... He should consider going somewhere. I'm not going to take that bait uh, to go down that. Though I really would love to use my last couple minutes to explore that, uh, to to unpack that question that you posed for me. Um, But instead, I I, I do want to ask you a a couple more quick things. Um, One is just, you know, going back to your, you know, I guess kind of thinking about your career and and where you're at right now. Uh, So I want to know if there's anything that you're mindful in now that you're like uh, a big shot at uh, you know Yale in your in your uh, position and doing doing stuff there, and so I guess I want to know what are you mindful of going into your new job uh, before the system gets to you? Are there you know any specific goals around like mentorship, teaching, research, impact, that sort of stuff that are important to the way you know you're viewing yourself at this stage of your career? I think by and large political science, which is my field, has already decided what it is and what it isn't. And primarily what it is, is it's an enterprise to understand how the world works. And that is the primary goal. Its primary goal is not policy recommendations. That is by and large, just the truth. Um, And I think that that's noble and that's important. And like, we need people who just study how the world works. Like there's space in my world for those people. Those are my colleagues and I have a lot of respect for them. At the same time, just knowing myself, I am personally not that motivated by just explaining how or why things are the way they are. I only do that insofar as it helps me come up with a solution to some problem. 
And like where I'm from, there are so many problems to solve. I feel like I, I don't have the luxury to sit back and explain, you know, some, you know, some particular political phenomenon. So I have this problem sol solver mindset. And what I want to do ideally is, so I can't just endlessly run RCTs, right? Like that's not building knowledge. That's not actually helping anyone. That's not solving any problems. If you don't have any generalizable insight, that's actually going to, you know, no one's going to take anything away from my studies if I don't know how to generalize the, the result and the insight. And so to do that, I need the theory. I need the traditional like intellectual work to actually build a theory around why these things happen so that we can apply them to other cases so that they can be useful. So in my ideal world, I bridge those two things together and I don't go the, you know, full on traditional political science route where, you know, I just like come up with big ideas, but I'm like very divorced from, you know, the problems that I see in my society. And at the same time, like I can't just be running RCTs all day like a monkey because <laughs> that's not going to actually help anyone either. So that's what I don't want to lose sight of. I don't want to come in here and be like, I'm just going to write a bunch of books and sit back. Like that's, that's not what motivates me. So I hope that I can always find a way to bridge those two things. Very cool. Um, do you have time for one more question? Yes. What are three books that have impacted Oh, yeah. No. Okay. I'm not going to say three Harry Potter books. Um, <laughs> that's the follow-up question. Which is your favorite <laughs> Harry Potter? I mean, The Goblet of Fire, I think, was was creative. Um, okay, no, I'm not going to go there. Um, so the first is um, The Space Between Us by Ryan Enos at Harvard. Uh, that book is about spatial segregation and social cohesion in America. And in his final chapter, in the conclusion, he says, things like contact programs, especially through sports, are not going to solve our problems because there are reasons, structural reasons, why people don't get along. And if you don't address those, then all you're going to do is basically build a handful of friendships and not address the root cause. Um, and that, so when I first read that, I was like, that's not true. Like, you know, getting people together on the soccer field, like that's going to, I know the power of that. Um, and at least in my study in Iraq, he turned out to be right. <laughs> and it made me just a lot more skeptical in general about these interventions that only address like individual everyday connect, you know, relationships between people. They're not, you know, speaking to the structural roots of conflict. And when those people finish those contact programs, like they're just going to go back into those homogenous bubbles, you know, and there's all the norms and the cultures and the reasons why they don't get along. They're just going to, all those things are going to be like shoved back in their face again. So you need to address both. So, so that's one book. The second book, and this is probably um, not a popular, I don't know how popular this response, this answer will be, but it's probably Nudge um, by Thaler and Sunstein. Uh, I know behavioral economics is going through a bit of a crisis point right now, maybe. But what I really like about that book is one specific insight, which is if people aren't doing something and you want to design intervention to fix that thing, you need to find out why they're not doing it. You need to find out what the obstacle is. It's not good enough to just do a lit review and say, oh, this intervention, this intervention, like all, all, all look promising. But no, in that specific context that you're working in, you need to put in the legwork and the field work and figure out why it's not already happening. Why is that solution not already happening? Is it just a matter of cost or is it some other thing that you need to address? 
So that insight I thought was, uh, was maybe obvious to a lot of people. For me, it was very helpful to think that way. You shouldn't just run intervention because you think it will work. You should run intervention because it specifically removes the obstacle that currently exists to that thing happening. Um, and then my last book is, uh, it's like, I guess, semi-fictional, also autobiographical. It's a book called Beer in the Snooker Club um, by, a, by an Egyptian author named Wagi Reli. And that book is just awesome. <laughs> like you should, it's very short, it's an easy read. And it's written like from his perspective, it's about, you know, his life as an Egyptian who went to like British and French schools and um, living in Egypt in the fifties and sixties and seventies and his friends and his girlfriends and going to Europe and being somewhere between this like European colonial identity and an Egyptian identity and being like sometimes a native, but not relating to his own people at other times. And just that like messiness of youth with all those other bigger questions and trying to like carve out this cosmopolitan identity. And I really related to a lot of that. So I just truly love that book and made me feel like even though this happened, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago to someone else, it, it really spoke a lot to me. Very cool. Uh, that's a great three selection. I'm definitely going to check that last one out, especially Beer in the Snooker Club. It's really, really a great read. Cool, cool. All right, Salma, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm a big fan of your work, and uh, I'm excited to see you know, the great work that you continue to do into the future. And I wanted to catch you while you're on the upslope of that huge explosion in your oh, career. Man. Uh, uh, so much expectation. <laughs> yeah, uh, I have a feeling you're going to rise to the occasion, though. So thanks for everything that you've so. done. And, um, thank, thank. I was yeah. really an honor to be invited to this show. Okay, I've looked at some of your other guests, and I'm you know, just honored to be in the same ballpark as all those other people. So I really appreciate the invite. That was my conversation with Salma Musa. I hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, if you did, please give a subscribe to Cognitive Revolution wherever you may be listening through. Thank you so much for listening this week, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Mm-hmm.